Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Happy Independence Day. And thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Morning, and welcome to this best of mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio for this day before the 4th of July. Carmen is off. I'm Paul Perot, her producer. Over the next couple of hours, we'll enjoy some recent conversations Carmen had on her show. In the second half of this hour, we'll hear a talk she had with Mark Galley, the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Back in April, he released a book called When Did We Start Forgetting God? And we'll hear that conversation later. Tomorrow, we commemorate the signing of the Declaration of Independence, what many consider the birthday of the United States of America. This document includes the famous phrase, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words are profound and strongly echo the biblical claim that humans are created in the image of God, and as such, life should be respected. Many who are pro-life focus on the right to life of the unborn. And while that is very important, what about other important issues around the sanctity of life? Things like racism and partiality, immigration and refugees, respect for women. Are these pro-life issues? Early in June, Carmen talked with frequent guest Karen Swallow Pryor, who this fall starts a new position with Southeastern Theological Seminary. In May, a documentary was released called AKA Jane Roe that painted parts of the pro-life movement and their political tactics in an unfavorable light. That dug up some deeper issues on what it means to be pro-life. We'll hear that conversation when the best of mornings with Carmen LeBurge continues here on Faith Radio. Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, we're going to talk about the pro-life movement. Karen, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. It's good to be back with you. Good morning. Um, So let me just go ahead and tell you, in the bottom of the next hour, I'm talking with a woman who wrote a book called Paul Verbs, P-A-W. And so I know as a... Right. But I mean, (laughs) I know as a dog lover, you, you would appreciate that. Um, but I am also thinking that as a uh, as a professor of English, um, that might be troubling to you. <laughs> well, it, it could go either way. <laughs> I know, I know. I just thought I'd, I'd share. Though, for sure. I, I just thought I would share with you that we we don't. Every conversation we have is not quite as heavy as the one you and I are about to have now. Sometimes I do lighten it up. Let's um let's talk about. Assume that um I have said nothing to my audience about this topic of Jane Roe, 
um, and what your article describes as the humiliation of the pro-life movement, because I am not sure I have even read them in on this storyline because we have been so consumed with conversations about race. So um, so let's start with uh, a bit of an explainer. Well, AKA Jane Roe is a documentary that was released on FX um, really just before all of this current chaos erupted um, about two weeks ago, I think it was, two or three weeks ago, uh, much, much anticipated documentary that um, is very much the words and life of Jane Roe herself, who is it's called AKA Jane Roe because that was the pseudonym used for Norma McCorvey, the woman whose case went before the Supreme Court and in 1973 gave America legalized abortion. Um, so the names Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe may mean something to listeners. Um, and her story has been told a number of times. Um, she's written her own books. Um, and her story is basically that she was born in poverty, a victim of abuse, became pregnant, was looking for an abortion, found some lawyers who um, actually or even, you know, ended up ended up getting an adoption, never even got an abortion. Um, but her lawyers took the case all the way to the Supreme Court and that ruling was, was won. Um, it was later discovered that, you know, she, because she had said she had been raped and that's why she was pregnant and wanted an abortion. That wasn't true. Um, so the whole case is, was built on a lie, but through the providence of God, Norma McCorvey eventually became a Christian, um, through the witness of, of pro-life activists, uh, and became a pro-life spokesperson. And then this documentary was showing her saying at the end of her life that that part was all a lie. So that was the film. And I, I wrote an essay just kind of trying to sort out some of the complicated um, emotions and thoughts I had as I watched the documentary. One of the conversations that I think it surfaces, Karen, is when somebody has a conversion experience, there are lots of people who would like to deny that that is true. Um, there are lots of people who would like to point to anyone who expresses um, the movement away from one um, one way of life to another way of life. Um, you know, a, a, a redemption, a conversion, a deconversion. Like we would like mm-hmm. to, we would like to deny deconversion is a real thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's that is some of what it feels like here. Like it, it feels like it disempowers my argument if you could deconvert. Um, however, in reality, that person's lived experience is that person's lived experience. And I am not in a position to tell you um, one way or the other what's going on. Yeah, I think part of the problem, uh, especially with within the church, is that we do we do rightly emphasize the conversion experience. That's actually one of the five uh, points in the quadrilateral that defines evangelicalism since the 18th century is conversionism, um, which is different from the older tradition in the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church, where you just sort of are born into that tradition and confirmed. Evangelicals have always emphasized that conscious, deliberate moment of conversion that we make. And as an evangelical, I believe in conversion. But I think we have often emphasized, and again, I'm talking about a spiritual conversion and also, you know, some of these, you know, more metaphorically, political 
ideological conversions. But we put so much emphasis on that that moment, that hour, that day, or that altar call, that we don't put enough emphasis on the sanctification process, the growth process. Um, because even though I do believe that our spiritual conversion occurs in an instant when we receive Christ and um, he uh, accepts us and writes our name in the book of life. Um, we still have to grow. We still have to grow. We still have to develop. And that process is very messy for most of us. Uh, and that's the part I think that we don't make a lot of room for. And that encourages us to use a model in our own thinking and emotions of like conversion, deconversion, black, white, you know, before, after, as opposed to just a messy, bumpy process. Talking with Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, we're talking about a piece she has posted at religionnews.com, and it is entitled uh, AKA Jane Roe. That is the name of the documentary, really, uh, about which we are talking. And then uh, the ongoing uh, title is The Humiliation of the Pro-Life Movement. We talk. Let's talk a little bit about humiliation, Karen. Um, that is a strong word. Um, it's a it's a powerful word. Um, I am always talking with um, younger Christians about uh, the the benefit of humbling ourselves uh, versus being humiliated. <laughs> um, and so let's talk about that. Well, the reason why I focused on that um, aspect, and even you know, I. Usually writers don't get to write their own titles, but I I, I wanted that title um, because there was a lot of advance notice, a lot of um, of pre-screening of the of the film. Pro-lifers weren't like I weren't allowed to pre-screen it, but major news outlets that would be sympathetic to the film's message um, that Norma McCorby was not really pro-life at the end of her her life. Um, there's a, there were a lot of articles written, and the headlines screamed out that Norma McCorvey was paid to change her mind. That's what a number of headlines said. That's what stories said, and then and how corrupt and hypocritical the pro-life movement was. So I went into the film thinking, and and I knew enough to know that some of those descriptions of what happens in the film were true. Um, and so I went into the film, and and saw you know expecting. Norma McCorvey to sort of be an embarrassment because, you know, we held her up as a pro-life hero and it turns out she says it was an act and the pro-life people that they chose to represent the pro-life movement who were close to Norma McCorvey, but certainly were not um, those who spent the most time with her at the end of her life or knew her the best. um, They presented sort of stark, you know, caricatures of of pro-life people. And so you could... It would be easy as a pro-life person, as a Christian, to walk away from that film and think, as I did, how humiliating. That was kind of just the words that were in my mind, how humiliate, how humiliating it is to be mocked and exposed on you know, national television in a well-crafted documentary. But the more that I thought about it, I just thought, well, you really can't be pro-life without being humili- humiliated. It is a humbling, humbling position to be in a culture today that values so much more um, than being pro-life and is so eager to take advantage of people who genuinely are pro-life. When we come back, Karen, I would love to talk about um, what it means to be genuinely pro-life 
in the midst of a cultural conversation where some people mean some people think that means exclusively one thing. And I want to read a couple of um, uh, parts of conversations that I had with listeners after a segment yesterday so that you can get a, You can help me do better in terms of um, articulating the breadth of what it means to be pro-life in some people's minds when for other people it means something very, very narrow. So I'm going to continue this conversation with Professor Karen Swallow-Prior in just a moment. Um, We are excited about the transition that she is making to become a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary this fall. Her most recent book is on reading well, finding the good life through great literature. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, I really am excited to introduce her as a a professor of English, Christianity, and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We now have, um, I mean, we love to talk with Bruce Ashford from uh, SBTS. Matt Hawkins is on with us. He's a a, a candidate there uh, in a PhD program. I mean, I just, you know, I just feel like, um, you know, you guys are doing good stuff. It's a good, well, it's a good tribe down there. With, with good conversation. That's it's, good, it's good. It's good. It's a good, it's a good tribe. Um, okay. So Karen, yesterday, well, in this ongoing conversation that we're having uh, as a nation, in mm-hmm. it's not just a conversation about race. It really is a conversation about justice. And mm-hmm. it really is a conversation um, about how we see one another and partiality it is a conversation about the gospel, or it, it must be. It must be a conversation about the gospel. Um, I confess to my listeners every single day, I'm learning how to have the conversation, um, and I make mistakes all the time uh, it, because these conversations are had in real time. And so, you know, this morning I have a listener, you know, calling me out for not, uh, not confronting my guest uh, for using the word if in relationship to systemic racism. Yesterday, I have listeners who are, um, uh, you know, who are upset that I allowed a conversation to proceed um, that was about the president of the United States, um, uh, because there are evangelicals out there who are asking questions about the veracity of the things that he says um, and whether or not, you know, his his character sort of exemplifies the Christian faith in ways that are a positive witness to others. Um the the pushback that I got was, you know, this is the most pro-life president that we've ever had. I I responded to those individuals by um, by actually trying to articulate a more robust understanding of of the pro-life movement than just abortion. It's not just limited to an abortion conversation for me. It's a dignity of all human life conversation. That's the pro-life conversation I'm trying to have. Can you talk with us about what it means to be pro-life today? Sure. This and that's that's a great question, and it's um, it is one. There's a lot of debate that revolves around just using that term. And as a person of words, (laughs) whose whose profession centers on language and the way that we use it, um, I really wish that we would agree on precise terms so that we can actually have the conversations about the things we need to talk about. Um, And I mean. The term pro-life goes back at least 30 years, um, and I remember when it first started being used in the media at the insistence of the pro-life side, because because it used to, if you look back in, in around Roe versus Wade times in news coverage, they simply used the terms anti-abortion and, and, and pro-abortion rights. And I think those terms are great. I think 
that's clear. <laughs> um, but in the age of marketing, everybody wants to have a, you know, a positive spin and the abortion rights people were brilliant in centering the discussion on choice and the pro-lifers kind of did their own version of, of putting a spin on it that saying we're, we're not anti anything. We're pro-life. Um, and it was centered only on abortion. It was a, those were political terms about the one's position on abortion law. Now, you know, things are increasingly complicated. We're finding that the old categories, the old binary categories, categories that we've used to define the modern age really don't fit anymore in a lot of places, um, including the two-party system. A lot of people are finding that has its flaws. Um, and so these terms don't really work anymore. But the main reason that the term pro-life doesn't work the old way is because those who stand against abortion, and I am one of them, have been exposed in mass as being hypocritical for not being holistically pro-life, and not even on other issues, but even on abortion itself. Um, the, our approach has been narrow and has been inadequate, and it cannot accommodate some of these other issues that come up that are very much derived from the same ethic that causes us to be opposed to abortion, and yet we don't apply those same principles. So all that to say, um, I do believe that if the term pro-life is used, not the historic way, but the way that the term, based on its actual principles, then it certainly does apply to a whole life picture, not just abortion. Thank you. Um, thank you for... Um helping us clarify the meaning of words, the importance of defining what we mean when we use a term today, um, because I do think that is an important conversation tool in, um, in virtually every conversation we're trying to have today. Um, mm -hmm. Words do not mean the same thing to everyone. And until I can be sure that the person with whom I am uh, talking, seeking to converse, is that we are using um, that we share the understand that we share an understanding of the meaning of the words that we're using. Our communication, our ability to communicate, is going to fall short. So, thank you for um, helping us uh, uh, understand a little bit more of what's going on um, when we use the term pro-life today, how it is used, what it means, and because I think this is a, a developing conversation uh, for us culturally. Absolutely. And on the other side, we I don't think it's correct to say that the president is the most pro-life president unless you're using the old definition. Yes, he arguably has enacted a number, the most anti-abortion policies or attempted to and appointed those judges. But he does not he is not pro-life in this holistic sense that the, the rising generation, the younger generations are are using the term that way. Um, and I think it's a better use of the term. And I, I have no problem being anti-abortion. And if we're talking about abortion, I think that's a term that works better. But if we're talking about a pro-life ethic, then we certainly need to be talking about more than abortion. Karen Swallow-Prior, thank you for always talking with us about more. I just love that. Thank you. Let's talk about more. Uh, Karen Swallow-Prior, uh, she is on her way to South Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, thank you, as always, for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back.
Thanks again for listening to the special pre-4th of July Best of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. I'm her producer, Paul Perot. Coming up next, well, we have powerful political action groups. We have lots of ministries and church programs, but why does it seem that many Christians are weak in their faith? Have we forgotten something? Mark Galley, the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, delves into that with his new book, When Did We Start Forgetting God? We'll hear that conversation again in just a few moments. By the way, we have a few copies of the book to give away, so feel free to text the word book, and just that word, just the word book, to 877-933-2484. Follow the prompt you receive back for a chance to win a copy. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. When it seems like nothing's going right at home, when your teen is spinning out of control, ever feel like throwing up your hands and walking away? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Yeah, raising healthy kids is tough business, and I meet a lot of parents who are confused, tired, and frustrated. They long for easier days. Well, there's no one who can wave a magic wand over your household and make it better, but there is one who can change you from the inside out. So when you feel like giving up, it's the perfect time to depend on God. So instead of getting hassled over the trials at home, turn to the only one who can help you. See this as a grand adventure for God to do His greatest work in you. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. is the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He joins us today as the author of When Did We Start Forgetting God? The Root of the Evangelical Crisis and Hope for the Future. Uh, He's joining us via Skype. Mark, welcome again to Mornings with Carmen. Yeah, good to be with you. So let's talk about the crisis at the root of uh, so many of the crises of our day. Um, You contend that there's one crisis at the heart of all of it, and that is that we have forgotten God. Yes, of course, uh, and uh, taking after our Lord, it's a, it's a bit of a hyper, hyperbole, <laughs> exaggeration to make a point, but I think it's, an, it's a true enough that it's accurate enough, it's certainly accurate in my own life. That is to say, of course, I talk about God, I pray to God, I uh, read scripture and try to understand what he wants for my life, but when it comes to the day-to-day living of my life and the kind of emotions that drive them, Pretty much after I say my morning devotions, uh, many days it's just a matter of uh, I put it's like I put God aside and now I'm, I now I'm going to get on to the business of life. Uh, and I think most of us are driven by that uh, by by a kind of activism uh, that always is tempting us to shove God out of the picture so that we can get some really important things done, things that are on our agenda. And I think that's what I'm trying to call us to. Uh, obviously not to ignore the fact that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but to frame that more and more with uh, our, our love of God. Okay. Um, never, it ha- never has a truer truth been spoken 
because the uh, what you describe as practical atheism, I uh, I describe as functional atheism. I think we're talking about exactly okay. the same thing. Yeah, and exactly. so um, my challenge, uh, my experiential challenge, is always with people who self-identify as evangelical Christians, and they do check off all the boxes. They uh, they go to church. They say they believe. Uh, they they say they're operating out of a biblical worldview. Um, uh, although when pressed. They're not actually applying that to life. They are living according to their own agenda, their own um, set of priorities that uh, that are often far afield, far afield from the character and nature of God, from the transcendental virtues, and certainly from the love of neighbor. I mean, so I'm, I I live right where you are. Uh, you're, you're scratching the itch. Uh, let me just say that uh, with this particular book. Let me uh, give people the title again. When did we start forgetting God, the root of the evangelical crisis and the hope for the future? The author is Mark Galley. Um, so people are going to respond um, immediately to both of us and say, God is on our money. God is in our Pledge of Allegiance. God is in the speeches of our politicians. Um, what do you mean when you claim that we have forgotten God? I think I mean what just what you've said. Uh, I called it... Uh, Practical atheism. I'm sorry. You called it practical atheism. You you actually call it practical atheism. Um, I call it call functional it atheism, but it's the same thing. Atheism. I think. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that phrase better. I wish I would have known that phrase. I would have used that in the book instead. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we. Uh, it is that habit uh, of just not allowing God to invade our lives, except in the areas where we're supposed to have Him. So that would be Sunday worship morning prayer, grace at meals. And it, I mean, some of it is, is good. I mean, obviously God wants airline pilots when they are helping, they're about to land a plane. He wants them not thinking about God and praying the Psalms right then. He wants them landing that plane safely and thinking about nothing else but the safety of the passengers. But there's many times during the day, even though we're doing a task for God that requires our full attention, that we could be stepping back and saying, and taking a breath and saying, wow, this whole thing that I'm in, involved in is due to the love and grace and mercy of, of my creator. And uh, simply allow that moment to be framed by our love and passion for God. But unfortunately, what we've done is we've taken the passage where Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we've said, well, what that means is I have to do good things for him. Well, it does mean that for sure. But I don't think he uses that phrase, love God with all my heart, uh, casually. I mean, I think he really means it. And uh, one of the things I'm striving for at this stage in my life is to figure out what does that mean and how do I stoke a, a heartfelt love for God in the midst of all my busy activities? All right. And that takes us really to the central theme of the book, which is the role of desire, is is my desire is a desire um not only for a knowledge of God but a desire to know God and then to please God are those the driving forces um in my spirituality and and then the driving force in my life i think that's that's ultimately the question you are inviting us to ask um is yes. is is yeah. a desire really at the heart of my evangelical christianity and the fact that uh, a lot of us will listen to that and go, oh, my gosh, it isn't. What is it that I desire? Indicates that we have lost sight of who God really is. And 
why I, while I take great uh, satisfaction in, in desiring something as simple as a morning cup of coffee or a beautiful sunset or visiting an art gallery or going fly fishing, the thing to be remember is that the ultimate delight for the human heart, the only thing that can satisfy our deepest yearnings is the person of God. Uh, and if we find ourselves taking more delight in his creation rather than the creator, we've kind of missed the point. And so when the psalmist says his greatest delight is to seek after God, he understands who the source of all delight is. Uh, but most of us, uh, that's something we forget. We forget that God is the ultimate source of all delight and joy and fulfillment. And we, uh, because it's so hard to find joy, satisfaction and fulfillment of God, because it's, it's a narrow road, it's a hard road. We tend to get detoured and we'll take shortcuts to get there to find something that's somewhat satisfactory in this life rather than focusing on on God himself. And I, I just need to make it absolutely clear, I'm not speaking from a position of I've got my act together and the rest of you don't. I'm saying this is what I've discovered in my own life. This is the journey I'm working on. I encourage, you know, I welcome uh, fellow uh, sojourners in this in this uh, journey. Yeah, in this Pilgrim's Progress of the 21st yes, century. Exactly. Uh, I'm talking that. with uh, Mark Galley. You know him as the uh, former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Um, we're talking with him today as the author of a brand new book, When Did We Start Forgetting God? The Root of the Evangelical Crisis and the Hope for the Future. we got to take a brief break, but when we come back, we're going to continue uh, this conversation. We'll be right back. Talking with Mark Galley about his new book, When Did We Start Forgetting God? Uh, Mark is observing that many of us have um, been detoured from the greatest delight, the greatest delight being God himself, not just the knowledge of him, but a sweet fellowship with him that grows richer and deeper every single day. Uh, Mark, talk with us about keeping the right focus. I mean, much of the book is about uh, keeping the right focus on God, not ourselves. Um, I think that's a particular challenge in this sort of my story, my truth, self-made, selfie culture. Yeah, it's also uh, hard in the, in a therapeutic culture where we talk, mm. where we, we think and instinctively act based on our feelings. So one key uh, moment of spiritual discernment I try to work in my own life is uh, what's going what's going on and why am I doing what I'm doing? So for example, when I attend uh, a worship service that is uh, full with has many praise choruses that often by their very nature lift the soul and make one feel love for God and feel God's presence in one heart. Uh, and what 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 the distinction is that you have to start to make is, the next week when you go to church, are you going to church to have a, an experience? Or are you going to church to worship God, who may give you an experience or may not? Uh, and I find sometimes after I've had an extraordinary spiritual experience, it's really kind of interesting how the enemy twists that. So now I'm thinking what I want now is to have a, a wonderful spiritual experience rather than give myself devotedly to God, who sometimes gives us experiences and sometimes doesn't. So that's what I mean by therapeutic culture. We 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 seek after the feeling uh, rather than the source of the feeling, 
uh, often. And uh, we, it's just one of the ways we have to check ourselves and say, whether I'm feeling spiritual or not, whether I'm feeling uh, uh, joyful or not, whether I'm feeling like I want to worship God or not, can I give myself to him devotedly? Uh, like we, you know, it's like, it's like we do in all other relationships, which aren't always sweet, but we do make them a high priority. So I feel like um, the book makes this, I mean, it comes in parts. So we have the crisis outlined at the beginning. We then have um, these observations about the church. And I really appreciate the back to the Bible um, part of that conversation. Um, And then uh, in part three, this deepening desire conversation. And, And I feel like, Mark, you've just, you've kind of pushed us in the direction of asking these why questions um, why why do I need a Sabbath and why would I observe it? I mean, this is not the way that you frame it, but this is this is now um, you're provoking me to kind of go back and and reread with this why question in mind. Um, obviously, you know, it's a spiritual discipline to read the Bible or to pray or to confess. But the way that you framed it is that these are also ways uh, into this deepening, um, the, cultivating a deepened desire to simply know God. Um, and yeah. That is that is rich. So talk with us a little bit about what have traditionally been called spiritual disciplines, which you take up here um, in the book. Yeah, I mean, it isn't like I'm asking us to do anything new, except except to just to remind ourselves that the church has been Christians have been struggling with this for 2000 years on and off. Uh, some more successfully have, than others. Uh but anyone who has made any progress in trying to fill their heart with the love and desire of God is a person probably who has been pretty serious about the spiritual disciplines, which includes the reading of Scripture where Christ comes to meet us, and prayer, and various types of prayer, not just prayer uh, listing a, a bunch of things I want God to do for me, but a listening prayer, what some people call contemplative prayer. Uh, it, it is, in, in one sense— Stoking our desire for God is not rocket science. There are these disciplines that have been given to us through the ages to help us do that. Uh, but they do require a fair amount of patience and perseverance. And and they do require us to remember that during the dry times, when we are in contemplative prayer and nothing seems to be happening, and when we're reading the Bible and no message seems to be getting to us, that those are part, instead of just abandoning it and in abandoning those moments and getting back to activity, which can be self-fulfilling in a lot of different ways, uh, it's still important for us to live through that dry period because that's actually a period in which God is trying to reveal something about himself to us. Uh, So the spiritual disciplines are really key to that. And again, I just want to make sure people know uh, I'm a learner on that that, uh, journey as well. Uh, But I just think one of the things I'm trying to point out in the book is that we not approach one another and approach our fellow human beings who aren't Christians as if we have got our act together in this department and mm-hmm. to recall how, how long the journey is and how much we still have to go, all the while knowing that God knew, knew all this before we did. It isn't like we have to beat ourselves for this, but he does draw us in to try to get a deeper and deeper relationship with him. Uh, I particularly appreciated chapter 19 on the topic of confession. Um, When we arrive at the end of the book, we find ourselves uh, challenged with the second commandment. So uh, I appreciate the way that you you describe, you know, Jesus doesn't even lose a breath between 
uh, telling us what the first com- reminding us what the first commandment is and being sure we also understand that the second is likened unto it, that we must love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, there's no uh, there's no conscious difference in loving God and loving neighbor in the mind of Christ. And yet somehow we have divided those two um, ideas and practices in our life together. Yeah, and what we we end up uh, uh, substituting the uh, penultimate goal of a lot of things to an ultimate goal. So when I worked at Christianity Today, there was a lot of talk about the need for more diversity in the company, uh, including more minorities on our staff and in our writers. And I, you know, I, I think, and I think we tend uh, on something like that. We say that's a good thing that because our country is. Uh, and especially our movement, evangelicalism is diverse. We we should have a diverse uh, staff. And let's say we got the diverse staff. Uh, we shouldn't then stop and say, well, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's great. We should remember that the reason why we want a diverse staff is because uh, because of God. God is a person who's created all this diversity. And instead of diversity in and of itself being an end, that's an ex- here would be an example of diver- if we have diversity, it should lead us to a greater gratefulness and love of God because it's a reflection of who God is as our creator of many and many diverse things, including diverse people, diverse flora and fauna. Uh, and almost every human activity that you think of, not almost, I'd say everyone, in which there's this penum- penultimate goal, uh, what I'm asking us to do is then to reframe that and remember that this also exists within a bigger frame, which is called the love and desire for God. All right. Uh, you, you, I'm going to give you an opportunity here at the close to uh, define a term. What is a monomaniac? <laughs> well, it's... An you know, I don't, want you to for, I don't want you to forget that you have been on Mornings with Carmen. I, I don't want you to forget yes. that. So I, I want you to define monomaniac. Really? Just someone who is just utterly captivated by a single vision. Uh, Kierkegaard, the philosopher, said the purity of heart is to will one thing. And uh, I think uh, the one thing that God God wants us to be absolutely monomaniac, I don't know what the adverb would be, (laughs) to be a monomaniac about is love. Monomaniacal. The word you're looking for is mono. Hey, I am here for you, Mark Galley. Anytime that you need a, a made-up word or the amplification of a word, I that is something I am good at. Hey, we have to leave it right there, Mark Galley. What a delight to talk with you again. The book is "When Did We Start Forgetting God?" Uh, you can uh, you can find Mark at Mark Galley, G A L L I E, MarkGalley dot com. No, Thank no, you. No, e, no, e, just an I. Oh, just an I. I put an E on there. Yeah, I see that now. Mark Galley, right. just an I. Uh, hey, thanks again. We appreciate your coming you. and joining us. Appreciate the All right. Opportunity. We'll be right Bless back. It. You're listening to the Faith Radio Network. Get a complete program listing or connect with us online at myfaithradio.com.
Again, thanks for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio for this day before the 4th of July. And we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Alley about his new book, When Did We Start Forgetting God? I have three copies to give away, so text the word book and just the word book, B-O-O-K, to this number, 877-933-2484. We'll send you back a link for you to go to and get your name in the hat for a chance to win on this drawing. Again, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Well, this is the day before Independence Day, the day that many think the Declaration of Independence was signed. Actually, That's not quite true. All the formalities around the Declaration took several weeks. The actual Declaration of Independence came on July 2nd in 1776. That's the day John Adams believed would be the one in American history that would be remembered. But it was on July 4th in 1776 that Congress approved the final text of the Declaration. As for the signing... That didn't happen until August 2nd of 1776. And although Thomas Jefferson is often seen as the author of the Declaration of Independence, in reality, he was a member of a five-person committee appointed by the Continental Congress to write the Declaration. The committee included Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Robert Livingston, and Robert Sherman. And I mentioned at the start of this hour the line from the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, that line was actually inspired by Virginia's Declaration of Rights written by George Mason. Mason wrote, all men are born equally free and independent. Mason listed man's natural rights as enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Jefferson listed man's inalienable rights as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, stay with us for another hour of the Best of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge for this day before the 4th of July. That continues after SRN News. I'm Paul Perot. Thanks for listening to Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.